Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Clint, uh, one of the pastors of this church. If you're a visitor, if you're first time with us, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. We are continuing, as we often do most normally, to preach straight through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, and we are at, obviously, as we've sung and looked and read, even in our scripture, the cross of Christ. So let me pray one more time and ask for God's help as you uh, get ready to uh, hear God's word. Father, I pray even now, would you bless the preaching of your word? May the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you and good to all who hear. For your glory and our eternal joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The next two Sundays, including this one, we will look at the most important events in history, human history and redemptive history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We'll look at the center of the Christian faith, that which the Bible calls of first importance, the, the foundation that everything in our life and all of our beliefs are built upon. If you pull out the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the entire deck of the Christian faith collapses. If you do not believe in what we're reading and studying the next two weeks, you cannot be a Christian. Your eternal state, your relationship with God, your internal peace is banked on the cross of Christ, determined by what you believe about the cross of Christ. But let me warn you, every one of us are and will be tempted to look away from the cross. The Bible teaches we have three great enemies in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of those enemies do not want us gazing upon the cross of Christ. We're tempted to look away from the cross because of the world. That is, it's countercultural. It doesn't make sense in how the world thinks about greatness and goodness and justice and mercy and kindness. The world does not like the folly of the cross, as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 32. So the world tempts you, don't, don't pay attention to the cross. But not only that, our sinful flesh says don't pay attention to the cross. Because if you pay attention to the cross, you have to come face to face with the sinfulness of your sin and the holiness of God's holiness. But also, the devil, the demonic realm, does not want you to look at the cross. He would snatch the word of the cross from those who hear it. Would blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing the gospel of grace and the light of mercy of Christ. Because if you see the cross, you see and know all that you need to be right with God forever. Satan does not want you to see the cross. Your flesh does not want you to look at the cross. The world does not want you to gaze upon the cross. But please don't look away. Please do not look away because God's just mercy is unveiled at the cross. God's holy grace is given to sinners like us through the cross. God's perfect love is climactically revealed in the cross. The cross of Christ is where the mercy of God and the justice of God collide in such a way that bring glory to God and grace to sinners like us. The big idea this morning at the cross, Christ was forsaken by God so that we might have fellowship with God. At the cross, Christ was forsaken by God that we might have fellowship with God. So don't look away from the holy justice of the cross or else you'll miss the gracious mercy of his love. If you look away from the gruesome nature of the holy justice of the cross, you will miss the glorious nature of the gracious mercy of his love. So don't look away. Let me give you a few scenes that are hard to look at, 
but challenge you not to look away. First, don't look away from the king beaten and mocked. Don't look away from the king beaten and mocked. Chapter 27, verse 27 to 31. This first scene, as we look at it, continues the bloody scene from last week, and it gets worse. Again, to remind you, refresh you, if you're new with us, Christ has just been stripped naked, tied to a post, and beaten nearly beyond recognition by leather straps with bone fragments and metal fragments in the end of them. His flesh is ripped open. He's apparently clothed again. And then we pick up in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him again and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him. They took the reed and struck him in the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So notice they go through all the trouble of putting on this robe on his mutilated body. So again, his flesh is ripped open. They put on this robe. That's not going to feel good. They take a crown of thorns and force it down over his head. And then they put a reed in his right hand. Why are they doing this? Because they're making a mock ceremony for the king of kings. They're like, all right, you're pretending to be a king. Here, let us give you a royal robe. Let us give you a crown. Let us put a reed in your hand as if it's your staff. They're making fun of him and the fact that he said he was a king. They're giving him a, a mock king's ceremony. Now, the great irony of this is, again, the Roman soldiers who do not recognize Christ as Messiah or King are not even concerned about if Christ is Messiah or King, but he's the King of the Jews. That's what they're making fun of. And yet the great irony is he's not only the King of the Jews, he's the King of the cosmos. He created the very animal that they made the leather straps from that they beat him with. Every single man that brought him physical and emotional anguish in these moments will bow the knee to him on that great day. Every mocker making fun of him eventually will confess he is Lord, their maker and king. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, Paul connects these dots. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God is highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But not for now. For now, our Savior is a mangled mess of open flesh. Blood streaming down over his eyes, pouring from the innumerable wounds of his body. They struck him in the head. He has a, a crown of thorns around his head. And with the reed, they struck him in his head. The pain and suffering of the Son of God is hard to look at. But let us not look away from the king beaten and mocked, or else we will miss the mercy of his love. Because again, why is he going through this? Well, because God is holy and we are sinful. <laughs> He's going through this because you and I deserve the wrath of God for our past, present, and future sins, but he loves us enough to suffer on our behalf as our substitute. God's justice must be upheld for his mercy to be poured out. So Calvin, commenting on this, says, when we behold the disfigurement of the Son of God, when we find ourselves appalled by his marred appearance, we need to reckon afresh that it is upon ourselves we gaze, for he stood in our place. As he is beaten and mocked, remember he was beaten and mocked in our place. Don't look away. Secondly, don't look away from the king crucified. So don't look away from him beaten and mocked, but also don't look away from him crucified. We come to scene two where Christ is actually crucified. Verse 32, we pick up. 
As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. So the one who knit bodies together in the womb is apparently weakened to the point where he's barely able to walk, let alone carry the cross beam. And so Simon, a passerby from Cyrene, which was in northern Africa, was compelled to carry Jesus' cross, likely again the cross beam. Luke also lets us know there are crowds of lamenting men and women, disciples following behind Simon as Simon carries the cross of the bloody and beaten Messiah. Simon himself's names are recorded in Luke, which means this very likely led him and his family to be followers of Christ. He's just a passerby, Luke tells us. They force and compel him to carry Christ's cross. And by the end, he's recorded in, in the annals of history, of redemptive history, probably as one following Christ. Verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which in, Cal- uh, or in Latin is Calvary. It's when we often talk about going to Calvary, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, wine mixed with gall was a narcotic drink. So you might think at first, oh, they're, like, this is sim- a sympathetic move. They're giving him something to numb the pain. That's not, not the case with the Romans. The Romans would offer this not out of sympathy, but in order to prolong the suffering. They want to make you be able to suffer longer, so they try to numb up some of the pain so that this will go on longer. Roman crucifixion was brutal. And then we read very simply, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. When they had crucified him, that's all Matthew gives us about the details of the actual crucifixion. And we know from uh, the other gospel writers, we know from uh, history, Matthew doesn't go into detail because he knows the Jews understand what Roman crucifixion is. They understand when he says when they crucified him, he understands that his uh, audience will understand the, the heinous nature of this execution. That one who was crucified again would be stripped naked and laid on the wooden cross again with the flesh already opened up. That would be nailed to it with nine-inch nails through his hands or wrists and his Achilles. They know that a triangular piece of wood was placed down on the middle as a seat, not for relief, but again to prolong the suffering. They know that a victim of this execution would suffocate while hanging on the cross, and because of suffocation, push up on the nails in his hands and in his feet in order to catch his breath, and this would prolong between uh, suffocation and the pain going through his hands and feet, the agony, the death. They know this is an exhausting process. They'll be slow, humiliating, and painful. Sometimes it would take victims days to die. All that's in the phrase, when they crucified him. And not only that, in the midst of all of this pain, notice they divided up his clothes like personal trophies. Playing paper, rock, scissors to see who gets what in this moment. Can you imagine what Christ is feeling in this moment? Again, summarize and think about where we've been as we've journeyed with him to this cross. Denial. Betrayal, loneliness, unspeakable pain and suffering. Don't look away. You need to see this. What would you do at this moment? If you were the almighty son of God and had all power and could do anything you want at this moment, what would you do? People are mocking you, making fun of you, calling you out, saying, if you really are who you say you are, do something about it. You're suffering, you're in torment, you're in pain. What would you do? Do you know what he was doing? Luke tells us, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. What mercy. What grace. Who, when being treated like this, prays for such wicked sinners? Christ, our Savior and King, does. He's nothing like us. Praise God. 
He's nothing like us. He's so holy. He's so just. He's so gracious. And he's so merciful that in this moment, at this very moment, with these enemies treating him like this, he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He is a wonderful Savior with wonderful grace for wicked sinners. Friends, just let me say to you this morning, maybe you're thinking something that I just want to correct very quickly. You are never too far gone for this kind of grace from this kind of Savior. I said last week, there may come a time it's too late, meaning your, your life may end before you repent and believe, but you're never too far gone. You're never too big of a sinner to out the grace of this kind of Savior. This is how, like, he's just other from us. He's just too gracious and too merciful for us to get our puny little minds around. He is so holy and so just, but so gracious and so merciful. Look at his grace and mercy for those beneath the cross and place yourself there at his feet. And again, why is he going through this? Because God is full of just mercy and holy grace. Again, you and I deserve this, but he loves us enough to suffer what we deserve so that we don't have to, and instead we can have fellowship with the Father that Christ has already earned. So we should take the wrath of the Father, but Christ says, I'm going to take this for you so you have fellowship with the Father, giving us exact opposite of what we deserve. Peter, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why, Peter? That he might bring us to God. Paul, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. Don't look away from the cross or else you'll look away from how much he was willing to go through in order to give his love to you. Don't look away. He stayed on the cross for sinners like you and like me. We continue, verse 36. They sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Christ crucified between two wicked insurrectionists, two wicked revolutionaries, two criminals. The Son of God treated like the worst of criminals. And they write down King of Jews uh, over his head. And they wrote in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So everyone, everybody could see how they wanted to mock and make fun of him. Verse 39, and we continue to see the suffering and the torment. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So we see in this darkest moment, passerbys are provoking his power. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, plus the criminals challenge his faith in God. And what do we see from this sin and these sinners and how they're responding? The religious leaders commit the same sinful error that the wicked pagan criminals do. They're all rejecting the Son of God and sinning against him by mocking and making fun of him. Satan doesn't care if you're moral or immoral, religious or irreligious. He just doesn't want you to look at Christ in the cross. Like as long as you reject Christ in the cross, he, Satan is fine with you being the best person you can possibly be. He just don't want you to look, so don't look away. Now part of me wishes he had come off the cross in this moment <laughs> with a roundhouse kick to the face of one <laughs> while punching another one in the throat and dropping individual lightning bolts on everyone else. <laughs> but that's the foolish part of me because he's in my place suffering my punishment. His enemies are saying, prove it, Jesus, if you are who you are, say you are, Mr. Savior. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Now, the great irony is the temple is being destroyed. 
and it will be rebuilt in three days. For his body is the temple. He is the place where sinners come to be reconciled and to worship God. He is God's presence in the world. His body will be crushed and rebuilt and sinners will enter into the holy of holies through faith in the true Israel, the true Passover lamb, the true scapegoat, the true Messiah, the son of man, the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ. But Jesus hasn't finished his suffering yet. God's justice is not fully satisfied. His work is not yet complete. Don't look away. Thirdly, don't look away from the king's death. Don't look away from the king's death. Now in scene three, we peer into Jesus' greatest suffering. And I do just want to understand, I want to, I want to be pastoral and help you understand and even ask for your prayers even as we continue this. It's been a heavy few weeks. These are weighty matters. And when you expound these matters, Satan is not happy with the one expounding or the one listening and believing. These are heavy, weighty things. I know it's been incredibly intense as we've watched Jesus betrayed by Jesus and Judas and abandoned by his disciples and denied by Peter and tried before the Sanhedrin and then Pilate. We've watched Barabbas, the criminal, be released instead of Jesus. We've seen him beaten beyond recognition. Now we've seen him crucified. Yet none of that was the worst of his suffering. We now approach the greatest suffering of Jesus and one of the greatest mysteries to uh, try to understand in all of Scripture. We'll see him cry out in great agony twice. Don't look away. Look and listen. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. So Christ was crucified about 9 a.m. But at about lunchtime, the sun's light failed, just as we sang in Jonathan's song. And the land went dark. Now this is not an eclipse. Passover was during a full moon. This is a supernatural event caused by divine judgment. God's common grace in the light of the sun is turned off as the Son of God suffers under the wrath of God. Creation itself is glitching because the agent of creation is dying. Or maybe better stated, creation is in the middle of a contraction that is so bad it blacks out. Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Jesus is turning up the cup of God's wrath that he was anticipating drinking in the Garden of Gethsemane, which led him to sweat great drops of blood. And listen to this first cry, this cry, this agony of abandonment. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity is abandoned by the Father. He's crying out in agony that comes when drinking the full cup of God's just wrath meant for sinners. The Father has turned his face away. The totality of human sin is crushing the Son of God. And he turns again to his Father like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. But instead of being ministered to by the angels and receiving strength to move forward, silence. Darkness. The lights were out. The father was not listening nor responding. Abandoned. Forsaken. Rejected. Left behind. In this moment, Jesus Christ was totally alone. Have you ever felt totally alone? There's been several times in my life, usually in the midst of great tragedy. Pain and suffering of death or something I just cannot get my head around where I just have gone somewhere alone to cry out to God in prayer and just felt totally alone. I felt very alone. Jesus didn't feel 
very alone. He was totally abandoned to drink the cup of wrath by himself alone, which is why he quoted from Psalm 22, verse 1. Just listen to Psalm 22 and consider, written hundreds of years, centuries before this moment, how Christ is demonstrating, I'm fulfilling this. Everything you're reading there was pointing to this moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths of me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potter. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me, accompany evil doers and circles and they pierce my hands and my feet I count all my bones they stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots no one on earth has ever been this alone on trial Jesus was silent because we are sinful but now the father is silent because Jesus is being treated as our sin what a mystery what horror what tragedy an author says it like this, nowhere in all the Bible do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness as this tortured cry from the lips of our dying Savior. Another, R.T. France, says this is the only time Jesus does not address God as Father, an indication that for a time even the intimate relationship of the Father and Son had been broken. Why? Why is the Father silent? Why is Jesus alone? We must keep reading. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. So that which he said out in Aramaic sounded like Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. So again, they hear him cry out this word, which sounds similar to the name Elijah, the promised forerunner of the Messiah. So they want to give him a drink and they're going to see what's going to happen. But then we see the second cry. Of our Savior. The first one was the agony of abandonment, but this second cry is ironic victory. Ironic victory. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, John and Luke combined to tell us what he cried. He cried out, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend, commit my spirit. I wonder if you've ever worked for a very long time on something very difficult and finally got to that point. Maybe you were studying for an exam. Maybe it was a project at work. Maybe it was something at your home. And you put years and years and years into it. You finally get to that moment and you finish it. And there's that great moment of satisfaction where it's like, finally, it's done. Finally, it's finished. Imagine if you had a plan since eternity passed for your justice to be satisfied in such a way that you could dispense your mercy to sinners, thereby accomplishing redemption 
But imagine that plan, including drinking down the full cup of God's wrath owed to humanity. That's why he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. The work of redemption is victorious. Now, the great irony is that the author of life accomplishes this victory through his death. And again, this is why the gospel makes no sense to the world without the help of the Spirit. The author of life accomplished redemption and victory through his death. How can God die? How can the Son of God die? How can the agent of creation become a part in, in flesh and be truly God and truly man and live and be a perfect life and then suffer and die this awful death we're seeing and actually die? He is forsaken by God on the cross that we might have fellowship with God through the cross. And even Psalm 22 began with the agony of abandonment. You know how Psalm 22 ends? Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship, messiahship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, even the one in this room. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it, that it is finished, that it is accomplished, that it is complete, that it is to die. He finished. He surrendered. He gave up his life. He died. He yielded up his spirit. The sovereign one surrenders to death to defeat sin, death, and Satan. The author of life died having accomplished everything he came to accomplish. 33 years of mission culminated into these six hours and then to Telestai. He was forsaken for our sake. He was forsaken for our fellowship. And what's the result? What happens? Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion who, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. So he gives up, he surrenders to death, he dies, and then what happens? Physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection. Uh, physically dead people come to life and spiritually dead people come to life. The curtain, the veil is torn in two. This was 60 foot tall, 30 foot wide, and a super thick curtain that separated the people of God from the presence of God, from going into the Holy of Holies. And only the priests on a certain day of the year with all kinds of sacrifices could go in there and they hope, yo, if you die, we got to try to snatch you out of there without going into his presence because sinners can't go to the holy presence of God. But when Jesus dies, the whole curtain rips in two. Christ is our temple. He's now broken the dividing wall between us and God. We now have full access to a holy and righteous God through the blood of Christ. So this death was this victorious death of Christ that now brings us into right fellowship with God. We now have access to God through the cross of Christ. Pastor Tony Evans says, in an instant, full access to God's holy presence through Jesus Christ was granted. No further sacrifices were necessary. Truly as Jesus declared it, it is finished. He was forsaken by God at the cross that we might have fellowship with God through the cross. 
This is why the author of Hebrews tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus says it is finished. And look what follows. The dead are raised to life physically. Now this is, it's crazy. You read it and it's like, what? <laughs> Talking about what happened? <laughs> like maybe y'all don't feel that way. You're just more holy than I am. I read it. I'm like, okay, let me read that again. Hold up. Like people actually got up out of graves. Yes. This is what we see happen. Dead people are resurrected to new life, showing the implications of Christ's substitutionary death and picturing what's going to happen in the end. So Christ in this moment not only accomplished and guaranteed forgiveness of individuals, but he's guaranteed and accomplished redemption of the cosmos such that the new heavens and the new earth are coming. Resurrection is sure to happen for everyone who dies, and he's demonstrating it right there in that moment. This is a foretaste of the life to come. New heavens, new earth is coming. Watch these dead bodies get up out of the ground and know that's coming for everyone who belongs to Christ. This is probably Old Testament and intertestamental saints who trusted in the coming Messiah. That's who we assume. We don't have any other historical or biblical data about this. We assume they ascended to heaven with Christ after his resurrection. But all we know and see that's clear is the death of Christ was the death blow to death itself. Death will not have the final word. Christ does. And not only is the physically dead raised, but again, the spiritually dead are raised to new life. The Roman centurion, the pagan who would have been around participating in all this mocking and suffering, is like, truly this was the Son of God. Y'all see them dead people get up out the ground? <laughs> Y'all see the curtain torn in two? Oh my goodness, everything he was saying about himself was true. We just mocked the King of Kings, not merely the King of the Jews. And this man is converted. I can't wait to talk to that brother in glory. Tell us what it was like. <laughs> When you saw the curtain torn and people get up out the grave, tell us what it was like for you to go from an enemy of God to a child of God in an instant. Well, Christian, all of us can tell that story. And we may have some uh, recollection of the exact moment. For some of us, we may not even know when it happened. But we can all say, I once was dead and now I'm alive. <laughs> I once was blind, but now I see. We can all say, I earned the wrath of God, but he gave me his love through Christ and I put my faith and trust in him and Christ said to tell us that it's finished and I understood I don't have to do anything to add to this rest in the finished work of Christ we can all testify to that with our brother the centurion in heaven don't look away but instead look to him like the centurion fourthly don't look from away from the king buried don't look away from the king buried our last scene for this week records his burial Uh, chapter 27, verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee and ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, I love that this is recorded by the gospel writers. All the gospel writers record this reality. That Christ himself gave value and worth to females, which was foreign to first century Jewish culture. Every gospel writer writes it. And listen, if you're going to use uh, documents in court to prove a case, a female's uh, uh, testimony wasn't accepted in, in court of law. They were devalued in this culture and society. But the writers of the gospel was like, yeah, but that joint's true. <laughs> the women followed him. And so historically it's there because Christ demonstrated, put on, there's no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. 
And so these ladies are here. And these, matter of fact, these women are women who would witness the crucifixion and then later be the first witnesses to the resurrection. As we'll see next week. Again, no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's just a fun sidebar. Let's continue. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The Son of God laid to rest in a rich man's tomb. Why do we need that, that detail? Well, because as we've seen throughout Matthew, Matthew's letting us know, I want you to know he's the King and Messiah, and he's fulfilled all that the Old Testament said he would fulfill, including this detail, Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, think about the two on his left and right, and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now for this week, that's where we'll end. We'll leave Jesus in Joseph's tomb. But we know he didn't stay there. We know after three days, the Son of God walked out of the tomb. But that's next week's sermon. Easter Sunday in November. I love it. <laughs> but let's be honest, as a Christian, and at King's Cross specifically, Easter Sunday is every Sunday. That tomb is always, always empty and that throne is always occupied. Everything in our entire life is built on the truth of the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Reformation Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is, is Resurrection Sunday for the Christian. So in conclusion, I pray that by the Spirit of God's power, you understand why I said don't look away. Again, our big idea this morning, at the cross, Christ was forsaken by God so that we might have fellowship with God. Don't look away from the holy justice of the cross or else you'll miss the gracious mercy of his love. He was rejected that we might be restored. He received God's holy justice that we might receive the gracious mercy of God. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He drank the cup of wrath that we might have the cup of salvation. He was treated as a foe so that we might be treated as a friend. He was forsaken that we might have fellowship. Don't look away because you're listening to a lost, dying, and broken world that's confused. Don't look away because you're afraid to face your sin. He said it's finished. Don't look away because Satan is lying to you and loading you up with accusations that your sins are too much for our God. Don't you see that God is holy and just in the cross? Don't you see that he's gracious and merciful? Don't you see how his holy justice is satisfied and his gracious mercy is distributed through the cross of Christ? Don't you see that Christ was forsaken that we might have fellowship with God? J.C. Ryle. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was done so that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was done so that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothes? It was done so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was done so that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and counted among those who have done wrong? It was done so that we might be reckoned an innocent and declared free from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was so that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last, the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? It was done so that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. I'm going to conclude with a couple of implications of the cross. So don't look away. Look there. And as a Christian, when you look there, 
Here's reality. Implication number one. God's love is yours forever. His love is yours forever. You can have assurance resting in the finished work of Christ. Look at all that he's done. Look at all that he's gone through in order to save you. Look at all that he's done in taking on the wrath of God to give you his righteousness. Do you not? There's nothing you need to do to contribute to your salvation. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you have to do. To tell us die, he said, it's finished. He didn't say it's finished once you do your part. He said it's finished, period, and then he died. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1 begins. Greatest chapter in all the scriptures, in my personal opinion, <laughs> though all of them are beautiful and glorious and inspired by God and authoritative, Romans 8 opens up after expounding the gospel. There is therefore now no t- condemnation for those in Christ. So in your heart, as you're walking with the Lord, if you feel like, ah, I just feel like I've messed up again this week and he, he just don't want to mess with me right now. All of his condemnation was poured out on Calvary. He has none left to give to you. Even if he disciplines you, he does so out of love as a loving father in order to bring you closer, not to push you away. Condemnation pushes you away. Conviction says, no, no, you come here, you belong to me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God's love is yours forever. You have assurance. Well, yes, but what about the bad weeks? What about them? To tell us die. What about the good weeks? What about them? To tell us die. You're not resting or banking on anything you do, everything he has done. So rest in the finished work of Christ and understand God's love is yours forever. You cannot lose. No one can snatch you out of his hands. He's got you. Second implication, God's care is forever certain. So his love is forever yours, but his care is forever certain. What do I mean by that? Listen, I've had some pastoral meetings with some members of this church this week and over the last couple of weeks. Some of y'all are going through. There's lots of pain. The pain and death of cancer, the pain and suffering of job loss, the pain of how am I going to pay the bills, the pain of what about the sin against me and can I ever heal from these wounds, the pain of what's going on in the Middle East and what is that going to mean for us, the pain of lost little ones in wombs. There's all kinds of pain and suffering. But the cross of Christ tells you God's got you. He will make sure you make it home safe. There's no condemnation, the beginning of Romans chapter 8. What's the end of Romans chapter 8? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's taking care of your sin problem on Calvary, he will shepherd you all the way to glory. He will not abandon you. He will not let you suffer beyond your ability to to stay with him because he's got you. So you can understand God's love is for you forever and his care is with you right now and for forever. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you ever go through, he will take care of you. He will get you safe to glory because he's just that good. So friends, don't look away from the cross. You see his love there. You see his mercy there. You see his grace there. You see his compassion and his shepherding care there. Don't Look away from the cross. Gaze upon the cross of Christ. Trust in the cross of Christ. Look to the cross of Christ. Believe on the cross of Christ. And non-Christian friends, please, if you don't hear anything else ever from this church, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son on the cross 
that whoever would believe would have life eternal, life everlasting, life forever with Christ. All you must do is cast yourself on the mercy of Christ through the cross of Christ. It's the most important truth in all of redemptive history. Build your entire life on it or regret it for all eternity. Those are the options. King's Cross, let us build our life on the cross of Christ. Let me close in prayer. Father.